Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. It's Liz Kelly. This week, we launched a new show on the network called the Ringer Fantasy Football Show. Coming from the guys who brought you the Fantasy Football Podcast, Danny Heifetz, Danny Kelly, and Craig Korolbeck will guide you through the fantasy football season, providing analysis on big picture conversations like weekly matchups, trades, and daily fantasy. The show will run every Monday and Wednesday throughout the rest of the summer, and we'll be helping you through the regular season as well. So follow and listen to the first episode of the Ringer Fantasy Football Podcast out now for free on Spotify. Welcome to a special Monday Jam Session. I'm Juliette Littman. I'm Amanda Dobbins. Taylor Swift season. It's here. We didn't expect it. And yet... We're deep in it. So many internet pieces and so many interviews with Aaron Desner to welcome Folklore, the eighth studio album from Taylor Swift. Amanda, how are you feeling in this new era of Taylor? That sentence really sums up a lot of it, doesn't it? Which is a lot of interviews with the guy from The National to talk about someone else's quarantine album. But I think that's the negative spin on it. Here's what I want to say up front. I think it's really cool that Taylor Swift did this. I'm I'm like very pro the, maybe not the concept, but the fact that she was in quarantine and, you know, wrote an album, did it in secret, has like stripped down a lot of the promotional kind of big tent aspects of a normal album rollout and is just like, hey, here is an album pretty much for me alone in my room and also the guy from The National. And and now you can have all of it. And I think that's great. I like a lot of things. I like the effort, which is something I rarely say and is also maybe some foreshadowing about what's to come later. And I think you also have to hand it to her success wise. I mean, this was bought like one 1.3 million copies sold over the weekend, which like that doesn't that's really crazy. mean anything in the Internet era. But that means a lot. It broke like a lot of streaming uh, records. It was extremely successful. So it worked. And I give her credit as always for figuring out how to be a pop star at a time when no one really seems to know how to be a celebrity or a pop star or very few people. Um, Beyonce knows how to be a pop star. Don't worry about it. Um, but so I I think all of it's cool and I like that she tried. Yeah. I, I, I really, really like um, Betty and Peace, which are back-to-back songs, 14 and 15, I think. And I really like the last Great American Dynasty. Um, and it's like a pleasant album. I, I think the music is sort of like... The funny thing about Taylor Swift is there's so much to discuss that is different, that is like separate from the music. But the music is always good. You know what I mean? Even if it's not great, it's always good. And the, I I think there are some really good songs on this album. Um, I find the the rollout really really fascinating as always. I I think you know you got at some of it, and we'll we'll dive deeper. I found like the first four days of this Taylor Swift album to be really just such a interesting window into the music industry and to artistry and perception of of um, female pop stars in 2020. And there's, there's just like a, a lot to parse. I will say our colleagues, um, Kate Hallowell and Nora Princiati did eight takeaways on Monday, which I definitely encourage you to listen to as they are like real Taylor experts. Nora said that she loves Taylor more than anyone else she's never met. And I thought, and you know, it, it showed. So I, I encourage you to check that out. It's the previous episode on this feed. Um, 
let's talk about the the press around this because I think that's sort of straight in our wheelhouse and the music I I like I have less kind things to say about the music just because it makes me think of a lot of comparisons that like I think I'm trying to avoid comparisons well no can we talk can we talk a little bit about the music because I think the music is an interesting way ultimately end to the press strategy and is an interesting way into talking about the con you know Taylor Swift in 2020 and what we might want from Taylor Swift in 2020 and what others might want from Taylor Swift in 2020 and what Taylor Swift might want to be because there obviously has been a press strategy and there have been the Easter eggs and Aaron Dessner has given like 45 interviews, which will at least, at least, which we'll talk about. Uh, But this does seem kind of like a, within the Taylor Swift ecosphere, a rare chance where like the music is doing most of the work. Yeah, that's true. You're right. I was shortchanging her. I mean, we just didn't have like a terrible single rollout six months in advance and, you know, multiple magazine covers written by herself and all of the the Tumblr and Instagrammy stuff. I mean, that did happen, but that happened with the music. There, right. there wasn't a like a traditional studio roll, um, studio album rollout. So the music... As we have alluded to, it is co-written and produced. A majority of it is co-written and produced with Aaron by Aaron Dessner or with Aaron Dessner, who is uh, one of the the lead guys in the National. Which Juliet, what's your relationship to the National? Zero interest, zero zero okay. awareness. Can't name a single song. Couldn't identify a single song. I only know about them because our colleague, who I've worked with for many years, Robert Mays, loves them, and that's like literally yeah. the only only reason why they're on my radar is because I think we covered them at Grantland. And like, that's basically it. I, in fact, know so little about Aaron Desner that like in all of these references to, is this a big, big red machine album, which I I was like, why would this be a big machine album? Taylor Swift's done with them. She's on Republic records. And of course, big machines, her old label with whom she's feuding. And it turns out that Aaron Desner and Justin Vernon have like a side project band called big red machine. And Mm -hmm. Justin Vernon's a guy from Bon Iver. So I, I know like nothing at all about the national. And I don't feel my life, my life has been worse as a result of it. Um, (laughs) I will say I liked a lot of his tunes on the song that he co-wrote with Taylor. And I will say, we also know a lot about the process again, because he's given so many interviews, which I'm sure every single person interviewing him was like, wow, I'm getting great stuff. And then he gave the same answers to every single person. So, so (laughs) hilarious. (laughs) Yeah. He's reading from a, a script that was vetted by Taylor Swift. Um, yeah. So the national. So there's an interesting thing that uh, several critics and people have alluded to, including Rob Harvilla, who I thought wrote a great piece for The Ringer about this album. And um, John Caramonica in The New York Times. And they pointed out a, you know, very famous line from We Are Never Getting Back Together, which is one of my favorite lines, which is, at, you know, at some point the, she's like talking to the person with like and referencing that. The, he's listening to an indie record that's much cooler than mine. You know, there's been a lot of positioning as like that, the national as that indie album, you know, and because the national are, were at some point, and I guess are still sort of like a indie, indie phenomenon. The the funny thing to me, and, and this is not my perception. And if, it, you know, if you like the national, if you're listening to this and you're a fan of the national, then let your light shine. But it is kind of funny. My perception of 
kind of music critic circles and the indie world was that like the national was never the cool indie record label. <laughs> and there are like a tremendous number of people who are like, oh my God, why did Taylor Swift um, do a record with a guy from the national? To me, I found the choice endearing while not personally being a fan of the national. I think that there is like just both a meta narrative consciousness on Taylor Swift part. And it's also, it's what she likes and she's never been the cool person as she has acknowledges like throughout all of her records and also like her music videos, you know, you've seen yeah. the video for me, like, you know, what's going on. And so the fact that she decided to go with this, not quite as like capital C cool indie sound because it's what she likes and kind of have her emotions feeling. I like appreciate that. I it's, good for her. That said, this album's just not very fun. No, and it doesn't, and, that's, and it doesn't, that's very much why it reminded me of like the emo indie bands of like 2003 or 2006. Like I, I heard, I think that, I think it was the last great American dynasty. I was like, this is the postal service. Like this is a song that I listened to in the woods of New Hampshire as a teenager. Like, and I was just like, this isn't that fun. Like, I'm just like, okay, good job. Taylor Swift. <laughs> yeah. Taylor Swift has big emotions and she writes fairy tales and she is, you know, writes silly things and self-involved things and angry things. You know, I, I don't, I don't want to position Taylor Swift as like a, um, a, a one note, just like trying to have fun pop star, but there was always an energy and like, honestly, a bit of mischief to her best writing that I really appreciated. And I was thinking a lot about how like, can it be pop music if it's not fun? I don't know. And that is probably a larger existential discussion. But for me, I kept being like, okay, but just like, when are we going to have something with a little like, you know, air in it? Like That's some... why I like Betty so much. Cause it sounds like an older Taylor Swift song that has like country roots, but is it's a real bop. There's a story to it. That was very, very classic Taylor to me. You just had a lot of things that I I'd like to dig in, dig in on. First of all, I have no opinion about the national because I don't know their music, but I found that Aaron Desner's disdain for pop music really came through in the interviews he was giving. Like he was saying how there's not a true pop song on the record as like a differentiator and as like a badge of honor. And I really resented that. I actually felt like this was in many ways. And I actually want to, before I say this, cause I, my bias is going to come through. I just want to say like, I really admire Taylor Swift to your, to your point. Like she is not a one note. She's evolved a lot. Nora actually said on the pod that this album is evolutionary, not revolutionary, which I thought was like a really great point. And she's immensely talented. She's just like a little Tracy flickish. So like she gets a lot of like negative feedback, but like she is an absolute boss in the best way possible. I mean, listen, she wrote these in four months in yeah, quarantine. Every, every, everyone else was getting their King Lear jokes off. And like, I'll be honest, this isn't King Lear, but she wrote an album of yeah, all the a, people who actually amazing. went and did a thing instead of making the King Lear jokes. It was Taylor Swift. And, yeah. and I guess Aaron Dessner continue. And she, and she like, apparently she wrote some of these songs in like seven hours or less. Like it's amazing. She's so productive and like, it's so great. That said, I felt like this was a real repudiation of the kind of Max Martin era of her, of her, um, career, not just her music, but her career, because that was also a differentiator. We are never, ever getting back together. It was the first song she did with him. Um, and I 
felt like because she also had a throwback to that song, this was supposed to be like a kind of a marking of a new era, consciously, unconsciously. It seems like she does nothing unconsciously or subconsciously. So, um, and that just hurts me personally because I love pop music so much and I worship Max Martin. He's a Swedish God. But that said, I, I, I just admire this woman so much. And I, I think that also I want to put the lyrics a little bit more. One of the things I really like about Betty is that I'm just like, it's a bop. But then, you know, people have read so, so much into it. And it's kind of become um, one of the main talking points. I think very quickly, Madison Malone Kirchner wrote about, is this like her queer song of all time for Vulture? And the three characters are named after the three daughters of Ryan Reynolds and Blake Lively, um, Inez, James, and Betty. Betty's name was was revealed via this song. She was just born and like nine months ago. And... And so Taylor Swift said that like that this song, Betty, along with August and Cardigan, are like the teenage love triangle trio. And so it's like, is it a queer story? Is it not? I think it's great if it is. I think it's great that people find identification in her work. But like, I have no interest in like trying to listen to all three songs over and over and over again on a loop to like piece the puzzle together. That's like too much work for me. Yeah, I think what's great about Betty is that it stood out to both of us as just being a a great Taylor Swift song. And it's one of, I think, the rare examples on this album where she's writing in a quote third person, but it it feels it feels personal. She has like actually embodied the character. And it's not a coincidence that we both like it because it has like real you belong with me like fearless early Taylor Swift country vibes. Even yeah. Yeah. Even like the arrangement, there's the harmonica on it. It's definitely like, oh, you wanted me to make another country album. Like, here you go, whiners. And, (laughs) you know, it's it's funny when the album was released, the album was announced on Thursday. I was talking with with Nora about our anxieties about this album. Um, because from what was announced, which was just in quarantine and working with Aaron Dessner and and Justin Vernon and um, and Jack Antonoff, I feel like there's a there's a corner of Taylor Swift fans, myself included, who are like, I really wish Taylor Swift would just like make her like back to, either her back to country or her Joni Mitchell album, and you know the this getting getting away from the the mega pop stuff, and it's funny I. I know that you thought that this was a repudiation of Max Martin, but I heard it more as a repudiation of reputation, which is a tongue twister that I have not listened to reputation since the night it came out for the record. So that's fine with me if she wants to move away from it. Not, not because I want to dismiss that style of music, but because I didn't think it was a great fit for her. So I was hoping that this would be a, a pure Taylor Swift album and it's not totally, but I did realize that what I mean when I want like a, a pure core Taylor Swift album is Betty. Like yeah. that's that's the sound and the style that I, that I am looking for. So I th- you know, she can still do it and it's great and it's cool that for me it works on that level and then for people who are, you know, parsing the lyrics and doing the homeland board with the triangles, which by the way, I did like eight years ago for red. So I'm not above it. I it's however you want to relate to music. Um, and also that it can be queer canon for the people who, who read it that way is I think great. And, and that to me is why Betty is one of the standouts of the album because it's like working on all of the levels. And then I, you pointed out also in the, uh, the exit survey on the ringer, I believe, which everyone should check out that you're also a big fan of peace, which I am as well. 
But that one feels like Taylor Swift writing as Taylor Swift. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that was the thing for me. And it, the music and the arrangements are part of it, which I just feel are a kind of little, like, they all sound a little the same and it's all, and it is a little oppressive and it's not that just fun, but there's just also that essential, like radical Taylor Swift directness that usually breaks through in the songwriting that is missing from many of the songs, but I think does really get there in peace. Peace uh, is beautiful. It's kind of tragic. And basically she, I think the line is, would it be enough if I can never bring you peace? Which is like, it's, that's a real deep relationship thought, you know? Yeah. I, I find that song really beautiful. It also is kind of, um, to me, encapsulates the best of the emotion of Boney Bear's music. And in the many interviews that he gave, Aaron Desner explained that that was, uh, the production on that was sort of like caping off of a style that Justin Vernon does. And also Justin Vernon was also involved in that song. And I, I actually felt that was like the best marriage of, of Boney Bear and Taylor Swift. But shall we talk about Exile? May we please talk about Exile? You could see me like, I was like bursting. I could barely hold it in. Exile rules. Exile is a banger. I just want to say, so I had a a very, I waited to listen to this album. I drove to the beach on Friday afternoon because it's the summer and it's quarantine and you got to you f- take your chances where you can. Uh, so I saved the album to listen to until I was like alone in the holy space of my car driving to the beach, you know? Um, and as soon as that bridge hits on exile, I found myself like applauding instinctively alone in my car. I was so moved by it. It's, it rules. It gets me every time. I think that it is basically a Bon Iver song, but you know what? 10 years ago when Bon Iver was just like really in the indie music space, it was really important to me. I felt young again. I felt wistful again. I don't even know what the song is about really, but I don't care. I love Exile. I don't know what it's about either. I liked it too. I, I didn't grab me in the same way, but I like it a lot as well. And Bon Iver is great. I mean, I think that is like kind of unites many people. Um, and one thing that uh, Andrew Gordaro pointed out to me that I think maybe other people picked up on as well is that she kind of like took Bon Iver back from Kanye West, which I really enjoy. And like, that's, that's the thing point. is like, the Taylor Swift like petty stuff is still is still a big part of this and I'm enjoying it. Like being the woman of the woods, I felt like was like kind of like resting that back from super annoying Justin Timberlake and super problematic John Mayer, who she's uh, allegedly uh, yeah. like, written songs about. And yes. and then taking Bon Iver back from Kanye. It's sort of like, there's like a lot of power moves with this album. And I enjoy that. And what's nice about it is that it's there if you want it, but she's also not um, hitting you over the head with it, or at least has not yet. I mean, we're five days in and who knows what the life cycle of this will be on the internet because it is just the internet and not any of the real world stuff that normally goes along with this. But uh, I agree. I think it just also helps that the song is really good. And, and I think it is one thing I noted. So Taylor Swift writes a just amazing bridge like nine times out of 10, the reason I like a Taylor Swift song is because when the bridge just goes crazy, I mean, think of All Too Well, think of uh, Out of the Woods, think of uh, Mean, think of I th- like all of them, right? And this album doesn't have a ton. It has bridges, but not very memorable ones, except for Exile, which again is why I started cheering. So I appreciated that it was a marriage of, of styles and of content. 
it, it's it's just it's great. It's definitely one of the, like the five highlights on the album. I, I mm-hmm. for sure agree. Um, what do you think about Taylor Swift having uh, folklore branded cardigans available for sale? And also sending them to like friends and influencers and Kobe Bryant's daughter, which was very sweet. We didn't, we didn't talk. I mean, that is very sweet. We didn't talk about the song cardigan. I haven't watched that video. I'm gonna be honest. I never will. I don't, I don't like, like the song. song. It sounds some like some urban outer outfitters nonsense. So it makes total sense that she would then do branded cardigans. Like, I, you know what? I guess you have to sell stuff. And if are the cardigans nice? I haven't seen them. They could be nice, but then they have these like stars on them. Like they're like patches, but they're stars. It like could be a really nice sweater that like Zach Morris would have worn at the beach club. Um, But uh, yeah, that it has like these like silver stars, which I'm not into. There's, there's still the machinery in place. Let's talk about the machinery. (laughs) Totally. I I mean, there is still the machinery in place. And I was thinking though, think about what the machinery was on the last album which was me with that singer from is Panic and the Disco, Brandon Brandon Urey. You love him. Yeah. Yeah, Great voice. That was not my favorite part of the machinery of the last album. Let's just put it that way. What about the like treasure hunt in Nashville with like those rainbows and, and unicorns beforehand? It was like a lot of pink. It's not what I want. It's just not what I want at all. And that, and part of it is because it is just like the mass machinery of we're trying to sell 1.3 million albums over the course of a weekend, which I guess that that's how you do it. And I have not sold 1.3 million of anything in my entire life. And I probably never will. So who am I to judge Taylor Swift? And then there is, there is also the aspect with the Taylor Swift is corny sometimes. Um, Super and that's corny. okay. That's how you get to sentimentality. And I think it, it's honestly hard to be as productive and successful as she is if you don't really like have an open heart and believe in what you're believing in. But some of it is not to my taste. And I am okay with the fact that the corniness on this album is manifested in like cardigans that I didn't have to see. And, you know, short stories about people who used to own her house that I don't really need to invest in. Like, this is basically an album of short stories, and I I am on the record about short stories. I'm not for them. But that, to me, is a far more palatable version of her more cornier instincts than, like, the me video. Sure. Yeah, sure. What do you think about the strategy of Taylor doing no press and Aaron Desner doing all the press through Q&As? Obviously, must have been. I think one of them said that was email. One was over the phone. It was so clearly managed because the answers were identical. That um, it was very, it was clearly very strategic. And I'm just curious. Uh, yeah, what do you think about that decision? Well, she can do whatever she wants. I actually don't mind that she's not out here flogging it. I think it's cool. I like. I I like that she just made an album and released it. And now we just get to listen to her music and parse it. I think that in a lot of ways, taking that layer of self-promotion has taken a lot of pressure off the album itself and how we receive it. Because, you know, there's a complicated way that we all talk about anyone in the public eye, but particularly women and women in pop. So it's just the music speaking for itself. I don't mind that she's not there. And I like, I guess this guy has got to earn his check. You know what I'm saying? So, and and also wants a lot of people who had never heard of, of Aaron Desner or The National before to seek out their music and use the opportunity that is given to you when um, authorized by Taylor Swift, I suppose. I 
I have a few thoughts about it. Go. This reminds me a little bit of around 25 when Adele came back and didn't, and she doesn't do that much press herself. She had a lot of people she worked with say what she was like in the studio and talk about the process of working with Adele. And I do think there's this trope in music publicity of having the largely male producer sort of vouch for the female singer, songwriter, vocalist lead in a way that obviously is effective, but I think also like really speaks to so many of the problems of how women are couched in the music um, landscape and just in celebrity that I think that it's like unfortunately powerful for this guy who makes indie records much cooler than mine to sort of be the one explaining how this came together. And it's powerful. And I noticed it, but it also like kind of bums me out. But I also think it's like a savvy strategy and Taylor Swift does nothing if not savvy. Um, and that's to take nothing away from her accomplishments at all. This is really just like a sort of a, a close reading of the press around it. Um, and I just think there's something a little bit strange about it. I think it's a great point. I do find that, you know, even as you were making that very salient point, I found myself having an instinctive reaction to, you know, the world of music criticism, yeah. which is a, a world that I have never had any interest in. <laughs> even though I worked in it for a very long time or, you know, adjacent to it, um, but is male dominated. And it's, uh, there are standards that are set by decades of men, both uh, criticism and, and, and within the industry. And so I think you're right that it's someone of the world speaking its language, but I, I was just kind of like, I'm, I don't care about this, you know? So this, this is not for me. I think this is for a different group of people, even though I guess I did read some of them and note that they were all the same and that Aaron Dessner like doesn't know the answers to half the, the questions. But you're right that how we talk about music, it's playing into traditional ways of how we talk about music. And I think that it probably doesn't matter for the success of Taylor Swift or how she is perceived, but possibly reinforces some cultural expectations down the road. There's so much power in her becoming, you know, writing a song that's arguably queer canon. And there's so much power in her in frickin' quarantine in 2020 when no one sells albums selling 1.3 million records, which was like previously in when Millennium came out, the Backstreet Boys sold that many. And it was like the most ever in an opening weekend. It was like such a big deal. The fact that she's doing that now is huge. And she just has like an army of fans. She has so much support. And for some reason... There's still like she needs to be like vouched for in some way or sort of like there's still people to win over. And that's always going to be the case, like in all parts of pop culture and uh, obviously art. And, and there's just something about her personality that I think like brings us out in people. But it's also in her success. It's also in the fact that she is so hugely successful and yet it's like still qualified. And it's just it's bizarre. I don't know. She's I, she's so unique. I like I really admire her. It's just it's fascinating to talk about it. I will say the the flip side of this is I, I did inter interpret it a little bit as like you go talk to them because I don't feel like it. Yeah. <laughs> Which I respect totally. immensely. And if I were Taylor Swift, that's what I would do. It'd be like, no, thank you. I will not be speaking to people. You can hear here is the list of approved sound bites. You say anything else and I will track you I will sue you, even though we worked on this entire album together. So I respect that in a way. But again, it's really singular to her. Do you think that Joe Alwyn is one of her um, 
mysterious co-writers. It's a fun idea, isn't it? Yeah. William Bowery. I, I'm open to it. I, I'm actually okay with someone being like, hey, what if this is Joe Allen? And I'm like, oh, that's cute. And then I never have to read a blog post about it again. You know, in, in two weeks, if we're still doing this super slew thing, I, people do need stuff to do in COVID-19. That's another thing. Let me just say this. Really appreciate just having some content. You oh, know yeah. what I mean? And every, I think some of it, just the timing. Everyone was like, oh, there is an album that's fully baked that we get to talk about now. It seemed really difficult for so many people to do that. And I think that's a credit to Taylor Swift being able to just sit down and write things. I mean, the the one aspect of the Aaron Dessner interviews that I find really interesting, um, and they're kind of a neat pairing with Miss Americana, the documentary that you and I both saw and really enjoyed. It's just kind of Taylor Swift as a songwriter and as a um, as a workhorse, as someone who just sits down and is like, okay, now we'll now I'll do this. And he sent her some music, and then like four hours later or whatever, there's a full version of uh, Cardigan because she just gets really involved in it. And I think you know that's a testament to her abilities and a testament to the fact that like you have to work very hard to be as good as as she is. That there is a lot of there's a deliberateness to all of this. So I, I it's great that, to have. I hope that becomes part of her legacy and her persona, which is that she is a hardworking singer-songwriter. I, I think that that is something that is just like, for some reason, always been evident. She's obviously very hardworking, but for some reason, the like the negatives that come along with that for like all professional women have have clouded the like just achievement of how hardworking she is and like how good she is at being a singer songwriter. And I do think that this album will help change that perception a little bit because it is such a testament to, you know, it's in the tradition of tradition of folk music, which is about storytelling and like guitar playing. And there's a lot of this on that album. And I, I like it. I, I hope it moves her closer to like the, the Bob Dylan side of the spectrum of mega stars. Yeah. I agree with you though. I feel like a little bit of, wistfulness about it. I mean, Taylor Swift is like one of the world's great type A control freaks. And I say that as one of the world's not great type A control freaks. Um, so it really takes one to know one. And there has always been a, um, an edge and a, and a perfectionism and a, um, a control to her music that I really responded to. And I think she always got a bad rap for because of how the world perceives those qualities in a woman. This, this album like gets away from it a little you know, this is a bit of a, a dreamier, looser, fantastical side of Taylor Swift, which it's great to have that side of you. You shouldn't uh, trust me being a control freak all the time. It's like not a way to live. Um, but I do find myself just being like, uh, I miss it. I, I miss the sharpness. Mm -hmm. I, I miss like the Taylor Swiftness. Like for me, the best line in the entire album is I believe it's on a visible string. Uh, yeah. So the cold was the steel of my axe to grind for the boys who broke my heart. Now I send their babies presents. That was which, great. You know, which is, I mean, and that's Taylor Swift in a line. And it is, it is memorable and, and pointed. And it, maybe that is a third person song, but no, I think that that is like coming from Taylor Swift. And I miss that archness and that not quite anger, but just, I, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't necessarily want her to give up her, her type A-ness and her 
deliberateness to to live in like dreamy folkland world. It's just not what I was into from Taylor Swift from the beginning. And it, it's funny you say that because I, you know, I've been obsessed with the Dixie Chicks album, also a Jack Antonoff production. Mm-hmm. That album has been much more resonant for me because of the rage on it. And that's mm-hmm. exactly what I felt was missing from this Taylor Swift album was some anger and some seething emotion. Like there's clearly a lot of emotion on this, but I wouldn't call it like seething or rageful or or sort of like propulsively angry. And I miss that. I, I think that she also is like, there's another line that I believe Rob pointed out about like how she responds when she's mad. I can't remember the lyric, but it's in Rob's piece. So check it out. Um, and I think she's like reflecting on a lot of like the sort of public fighting and feuds and, and sort of, you know, she's had a lot of it over the last few years and it's sort of the, the reflection is taking place of the, of the actual event in, in this case. And I, I miss that for sure. And one of the questions on the exit survey was like, will this be the defining album of quarantine? And I felt like, no, because I, I think that quarantine has given way to rage. I mean, how do you look back on the summer of 2020 and not hone in on, on the protests of June and the anger people feel over the state of the world? I mean, there's a lot to be angry about for a lot of people. And I, I felt that this, you know, you call it dreamy. This album is like really, really divorced from the, the like current moment, like right now at the end of July, like it, it definitely did feel like the, like the beginning of COVID to me, but the world is moving so quickly in a weird way. I felt like it was outdated. And I, I think that some of the anger, um, she doesn't know how to channel and that, that, and, or maybe just, not that she doesn't know how to channel, but I think some of the political, the political aspect of like, she's, you know, trying to become more political, which I commend. And that was a big part of the Miss Americana documentary as well is really absent here. And that's okay. You can just make an album, but for that, for that reason, it just didn't like connect with me quite in the same way in this given moment. Yeah. I, I think you made the point in the exit survey that this feels like an April quarantine album as opposed to a July. Yeah. And obviously the difference between April and June was like, we were, we were only one month into, or the U S I should yeah. say, was only one month into quarantine. And um, we had not had the uh, protest movement um, that started in June and that is ongoing. And it it was just like a different emotional state. And I think she did start writing these songs in April. So yes. maybe it's a an album of early quarantine, you know, but I but I agree with you. I think for me, I've been thinking about will this be a like a defining Taylor Swift album? And you know, I for me it's not because it does lose that essential Taylorness and it loses a lot of the the rage and, you know, the the pettiness and um the in in a lot of cases the personal stuff that she has traded on for so long. And I'm of two minds about that because you know, she started as a, as a teenager and was precocious and talented. And I think we all took great joy in kind of reliving some teenage emotions through her, like really magical ability to, to channel those and make them broad to an audience, but you can't be a teenager forever. And she turned 30 last year. And, you know, we, we've talked before about how she's trying to become a like more mature artist in the public view. And that can be difficult, especially when people really are attached to you from what is like a, a, an evocation of childlike or teenage feelings. Um, and so I do kind of admire that she is moving towards like a much more mature songwriting, um, 
perspective, specifically like in the content. She's not just airing out every single ex person or, you know, doing all of the Easter eggs and the songs of being like, well, this could be about so-and-so, but this could also be about this. And this is about the time that I went to this concert or you caught a paparazzi photo of me here. I mean, that is both exhausting to quote another Taylor Swift song and, um, does ultimately seem childish, especially if you keep doing it over and over again. There's kind of like an arrested development quality to it. So I both admire that she's trying to move past it while also being like, no, but that's what I liked. And it's very, it's very hard. And, and and those are unfair expectations that I'm putting on her as a Taylor Swift fan. I think I'm probably not alone in that, but it must be pretty hard to reconcile what you became famous for. And, and honestly, your main skill and then how to how to grow in public. I was watching the David Foster documentary last night. And wow. <laughs> have you watched it? It's on Netflix. I, I haven't yet. There's some thrilling moments in it because his career has just touched a lot of greatness. He's clearly a jerk. Anyway, in it, he was talking about how they selected the song I Will Always Love You for the Bodyguard and also talking about just his experience of kind of like matching singers with songs. And I kind of had forgotten that that was how the music industry went until like very recently, like until the Beatles, right? And then even then they were sort of the first to write their own music and whatnot. And it made me think about how powerful it is for Taylor to just write her own songs and just like do do her own thing and like make write her own songs for herself to make art for herself, to be exploring how she feels in such a public forum um, when so many people in the music industry don't do that. And and I'm particularly obsessed with songwriters because I just think it's like such a, a great and exciting world. And I, I love, I, I'm such a, a geek for how, how songs come together. And it's like endlessly fascinating to me. And it's really amazing that um, she chooses to write songs for herself and she's, and, and that's just kind of like how it goes. And even when she has, like she has credits on, um, she has a credit on a, uh, the Calvin Harris song for Rihanna, uh, what she came here for. And that was like under a pseudonym at first when she was dating Calvin Harris, et cetera. That's like an anomaly. And like, I, I, I'm willing to guess that, um, she probably just like contributed something off the cuff. And then like, therefore they had to credit her, which happens a lot. Like you can contribute a very small thing and then you get credited, but that's like not really her MO. Like unlike many of her peers, like Ed Sheeran and like just other like great singer songwriters of pop, she does it for herself and I admire it. I, she's just like someone who I clearly would not want to be friends with who I think has just achieved so much and I admire it. I don't know. I think I would want to be friends with her, but I don't think so, maybe Amanda. would find I, it. I think your, I think your type A-ness would clash. I guess that's true. I do. There is another line that I took to be in the first person that's about, I and I want to say it's maybe it's in peace, but it's about, whoever the person is, you know, that has some noble goals. And she's just like, I just talk shit with my friends. Yeah. I was like, yeah, well, same me too. So I, I think she would actually be a fun gossip. You're right that, you know, our type itness would clash. And also I think we just have some different aesthetic tastes and that's okay. Absolutely. All right. A couple quick hits. Friend of Taylor yeah. Swift, Gigi Hadid. Yes. Yeah, speaking of aesthetic taste. She did an Instagram post showing off her New York apartment. And she said she's put a lot of work into it. 
The thing that's getting a lot of attention is that she has these cabinets that um, are glass in the front. And so they have like a visible thing instead of being able to see her dishes or whatever. She's filled them with dried pasta, which she dyed different colors. And it looks like a, a like what you would have your child do during quarantine when you've run out of activities. But there were just like a lot of aesthetic choices that I didn't agree with. I think the pasta is sort of like the least of my troubles personally. Amanda, what do you think of this home? Let me just say the pasta is replaceable as I understand it. Yeah. And it looks kind of like it's like people do that with beans. Yeah. Or going to a candy store, you know, and it won't go bad. It's if if you travel a lot, you don't have to worry about that. It makes sense. It's true. I I just liked that it was so specifically of one person's taste. You see a lot of these homes and it they have hired a decorator and they have some boring Instagram aesthetic, you know, stuff and some art that doesn't mean anything to them. And it looks like no one lives there. And this looks like someone wants to live there somewhat very specific with very specific ideas. And I think even in the caption, you know, she thanks all the people who embraced her ideas and didn't call her crazy because it's really specific. But a lot of color, way more color than you tend to get in a celebrity's home. I like it. I like Gigi Hadid, like affirmatively. Uh, Gigi Hadid is someone I would like to be friends with. She seems great. And she seems like she has personality and she seems exuberant. There's an exuberance to this decorating style that I admire. It's not what I would do. It's her house. She has more money than I do and she can spend it however she wants. She's got a lot of stuff. I'm just like a little concerned with how many possessions she has, but that's that. Check it out. Check out her Instagram if you haven't looked at it yet. Yeah, I also wondered about like the natural light in here. Yeah, not a lot of it, right? Yeah, that I could see, but I guess she's traveling a lot. I mean, the, the one note I have is that there's this photo of the kitchen, which looks well stocked because Gigi Hadid likes to cook. Um, but then there's just like a very large bowl full of um, pool balls on the kitchen counter. But that's just that's space that you need, you know, put something in that bowl that you can actually use in the kitchen is kind of where I am with it. Agreed. Whatever. Okay. All right, Amanda, tell us about the end of Rodham, the current assistant oh that you teased last week. Okay. So <laughs> I, I talked about reading Rodham, the Curtis Sittenfeld book. And then I believe the next day it was announced that uh, Sarah Treem, who is the creator of The Affair, will be turning Rodham into a television show. Who I believe the Hollywood Reporter wrote a story about the, the affair. And it was clear that Sarah Treem was um, part of a culture that many people did not like on the, on right. the set. I don't know why I had to mention that, but I just wanted to give context about Sarah Treem. That's very important. I think it's also worth noting that the affair as a TV show did not really live up to the promise of its premise. Julia, you would know that more than anyone. Seasons one and Uh, two were excellent, and then it just absolutely goes off the rails. Great, great stuff. Good quarantine watch. Honestly, get into it, people. Showtime. Check it out. Anyway, so I was reading Rodham. Rodham had like kind of a pop cultural moment, and so I finished Rodham. And I would like to do a spoiler special here. So if you're going to read Rodham, if you're going to read Rodham, turn off the podcast. We hope you enjoyed our Taylor Swift conversation. Carry on. Yeah. And we thank you. And we hope you have a great week. Juliet. Wow. Yikes. I don't even know. There were so many times when I almost texted you just being like, here's another thing that happened in Rodham. And then I was like, Juliet doesn't care. I'll just save it for the pod. Like I didn't, I didn't have anyone to live blog my reading with. So 
Rodham is this is a hypothetical experiment. It's what if Hillary Clinton had not married Bill? And so, like I said, the last week, the first third is in the 70s and she's dating Bill and they have just like a tremendous amount of sex. And the book is like very committed to describing fictional sex, but not fictional, but I I assume some of the sex happened, though maybe it's not documented between Bill Clinton and Hillary Rodham Clinton and Hillary Rodham. And then she's like, no, I'm I'm not going to marry you. Um, And then it becomes one of the more bizarre liberal wish fulfillment exercises that I have read. No, thank you. Absolutely not. Let's be fair. Of course, it's a liberal wish fulfillment exercise. It's literally a fictional book about whether like what would have happened if Hillary Clinton hadn't married Bill Clinton. That's already projecting so many expectations about Hillary Clinton and and what happened in 2016 and what happened with her career and sexism in the world. That's like it by positing that that is the butterfly effect defining moment. Of of course, it's going to be really limited. I was surprised by how limited the exploration was uh, just in terms of. Uh, and so spoiler alert, she definitely becomes president. Just just so you know, like that's because that's all that if I, like, which is insane. And I don't know what else I expected. And I, I found both the the larger existential exploration of it pretty limited. And, and I was frustrated that kind of in the small scenes and in the choices that she makes of what she includes and what she doesn't include and how she wants to explore this wish fulfillment, I found it pretty surface level in a way that um, was disappointing because there was a reason I was reading it. Like, let's let's be real. I read all of this book. So some of it is on me for wanting to participate <laughs> in this wish fulfillment and thinking it would be interesting and, you know, what would it mean? And, and maybe it would be an exploration of sexism and politics and maybe it would be an exploration of the last 50 years of being a a woman in the public eye or just a working woman because a lot has changed in those 50 years a a working white woman specifically I should say because you know that point really well is um I just finished it this morning the vanishing half I thought that made a great point about how much work has changed for women in the last 60 years actually yes yes so maybe Great check book. that out instead. <laughs> yeah, right. We both read that book. Really recommend it. Um, that will also be made into a TV show by HBO. Congra- like, congratulations to Brett Bennett. That's like ready-made to be a great TV show. Totally. Um, I just, ultimately, I wanted to examine my own fascination with reading Rodham because I don't know what I wanted it to be. I think that I maybe wanted it to have a bit more character exploration and a little bit more, I think I wanted it to hold Hillary Clinton a little bit more responsible, which in itself is an interesting expectation. Um, and I think we've all been grappling with that a bit in the, since 2016, particularly, but throughout of how much of what has happened in the political sphere is because of policies at large and or, you know, Russia and or the political system and how much of it is of, of personal or political choices that were made by anyone from Hillary Clinton herself to the DNC to, to, to a lot of people. But the book really only wanted to operate on the broadest strokes and didn't want to assign any responsibility or really like even personality to Hillary herself. And that's what I thought was so interesting and or not interesting, but so ultimately frustrating about the book was that the premise supposes that if she hadn't, if Hillary had not married Bill Clinton, then there would be this other world open to her, but then doesn't assign any personality or character or agency or even imagine 
what that would look like. And like, I don't know what fiction is supposed to be, if not that. Right. I just think that there's a lot of trauma associated with Hillary Clinton in many ways that even includes the impeachment hearings and, and just like, like the last 30 years of Hillary Clinton is, is really fraught and complicated. And so somewhat similar to Taylor Swift, a lot of the accomplishment is really overshadowed. I mean, she was secretary of state. She did a great job. Like she also, you know, she's the first woman to run for president. Like she didn't win. And we're all still recovering from that. Well, not all of us, but many of us. And that's really hard. But like, I think just like ultimately Hillary Clinton is just, is not the avatar to get us through almost anything. Didn't get us through the election. Doesn't have the answers now. And I'm saying that as an avatar, as like an actual politician and a human, I don't know. I don't think she's afforded that space, but Hillary Clinton, the avatar is very problematic as proven over so many times over. Yeah. And I think what I thought might be interesting is that I thought maybe this book could be an exploration of what she is as an avatar and and what else she could have been. It just doesn't engage even with that impulse. It's it's very confusing. It I mean, it really just is is kind of like Hillary fan fiction um, and with no disrespect to fan fiction, uh, which uh, like, honestly, I think if it had been marketed that I would have had a better time understanding it. And I do think some of this is that um, Curtis Sittenfeld had already written one book about Laura Bush that I th- was more of like an interior exploration and it was marketed uh, as sort of a, a prestige project. And so you have different expectations, but man, I it it was not what I wanted and then left me spending a lot of time being like, why, what did I want from this? And I, and I don't really know, but you know, again, I, I did read all of it. I do find myself kind of still wanting to understand the Hillary Clinton thing in some way. I I guess that's just how I internalize the world. I mean, this is a podcast about celebrities, (laughs) right? And at some point I'm just kind of like, but maybe if I could understand what's going on with her, then I could understand the broader world and all of these systemic issues. And at the end of the day, it's, it's much larger than one person. And I also don't, I also personally don't think she's the key to unlocking that. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I, and I think that that is definitely something that I learned in this hypothetical experiment. <laughs> yeah. So I guess it was fascinating to read, but... I won't be reading it. Yeah. Okay. Maybe we'll do an, a books check-in soon. Sounds great. Thank you so much for coming on this journey with us, everyone. Listen to Peace and Exile on a loop. If you're Exile! Listening to, Exile! Listening to folklore. <laughs> we'll be back next week on our regular Tuesday afternoons. Bye!